This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. The Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, a tool that halts corrupt practices and creates a level playing field for honest businesses, or a horrible law that disadvantages U.S. businesses trying to compete abroad. Lawyers, policymakers, and businesses have widely differing and strong views on the FCPA. We've invited two FCPA experts to talk with us about that and more on this episode of Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, helping you stay current on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. Good to be with you, Chris. In today's episode, we'll be talking all things Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, or FCPA, with two leaders in the anti-corruption academic world. As practitioners, both Kurt and I have worked in numerous FCPA matters, including in-country work on allegations of bribery and corruption in Latin America, Europe, and Asia. We're excited to talk more with our guests on the recent developments in the enforcement of the FCPA, as well as a few recent cases of note focused on that topic. I have to say, Chris, I'm really excited about this episode. FCPA cases have consumed a large part of my professional life. I've spent countless hours on FCPA investigations and enforcement actions. It's a fascinating area of law, and it's given me the opportunity over the years to explore the world, learn about new cultures, and work on some really interesting matters with some remarkable clients. And I'm super excited to have two exceptional guests today. Both are FCPA experts, and we're lucky to have them. Dean Jessica Tillipman from the George Washington University Law School, and Professor Andy Spaulding from my alma mater, the University of Richmond School of Law. Listeners who practice in the FCPA space likely know Jessica and Andy, but let's do some quick introductions. Jessica Tillipman is the Assistant Dean for Field Placement and a professional lecturer in law at the George Washington University School of Law. At GW Law, she teaches a government contracts, anti-corruption, and compliance seminar that focuses on anti-corruption, ethics, and compliance issues in government procurement. She also advises companies on anti-corruption compliance issues. Jessica is a senior editor at the FCPA blog and a co-chair of the American Bar Association Section of International Law Anti-Corruption Committee. Before joining GW Law, Jessica was an attorney in the government contracts and white-collar criminal defense and counseling practice groups at Jenner & Block in Washington, D.C. Jessica, welcome to Insecurities. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Andy Spaulding is a professor at the University of Richmond School of Law in Virginia and also serves as a senior editor of the FCPA blog alongside Jessica. Andy's writing has appeared in the UCLA Law Review, the Washington University Law Review, and has been covered by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, and NPR. A former Fulbright senior research scholar in Mumbai, Andy also complements his experience as a practitioner at a major international firm with his unique focus on international efforts regarding anti-corruption in sports. As chair of the Olympics Compliance Task Force, Andy collaborates with a team of international academics to design and promote host-country anti-corruption and human rights measures. In fact, he's writing a book on the subject entitled A Governance Legacy, exploring megasports' potential impact to improve anti-corruption efforts in host nations. According to the Richmond School of Law website, Andy regularly incorporates his students into his Olympic studies regarding anti-corruption, including the recent 2016 Summer Games in Rio and the 2018 Pyeongchang Games. After a moderately successful college swimming career, Andy, collaborating with you might finally be my ticket to make it to the Olympic Games. Regardless, Andy Spaulding, welcome to Insecurities. Great to be here, and and Chris, I hope to do what I can to get you there. (laughs) Thank you, sir. All right, so before we get started with our guests today, we want to take a minute just to level set. We assume many of our listeners will be familiar with the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, but for those who aren't quite as sure what's going on here, we're going to spend a couple of minutes just giving you a little bit of the nuts and bolts. Congress enacted the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, known as the FCPA, in 1977 to combat widespread bribery of foreign officials by U.S. companies. The act was intended to halt corrupt practices and level the playing field. 
Though for decades, from an enforcement standpoint, enforcement remained mostly dormant. Broadly speaking, the FCPA has two components, an anti-bribery component and a books and records or accounting component. I'm going to talk a little bit about the anti-bribery piece and then dish to our resident accountant, Chris, to talk about the books and records piece. Let me just note at the outset that we are not doing a deep dive here. The FCPA can be a pretty wonky, definition-driven space. Today, we just want to provide an overview. With that, the FCPA's anti-bribery provisions prohibit individuals and businesses from paying bribes or giving anything of value to foreign officials in order to obtain or retain business or to secure an improper business advantage. That's kind of a lot, so let me break it down into a few component parts. The FCPA anti-bribery provisions prohibit, one, a payment or offer to pay, quote, anything of value, directly or indirectly, two, to a foreign government official, three, in order to assist in obtaining, retaining, or directing business, or securing an unfair business advantage, and four, with corrupt intent, that is knowingly. You cannot knowingly bribe a foreign official to win business. That's essentially the rules of the road and the anti-bribery provisions. Examples of improper payments might include bribing a judge to make a case go away, bribing a government official to win a contract, like paying a doctor in a public hospital to purchase equipment, taking an official to an extravagant dinner or paying for overseas travel, or allowing an official to participate in a private placement of securities. The FCPA applies broadly to conduct both within and outside the U.S. Specifically, the FCPA applies to U.S. persons and businesses, public companies listed on a U.S. stock exchange, and certain foreign persons or foreign businesses that act in the U.S. And, as we'll discuss with Andy in a few minutes, regulators have consistently tried to stretch the FCPA's reach. So I, I think that's enough on anti-bribery, at least to, to level set for our listeners. Chris, you want to tell us a little bit about books and records? Yeah, Kurt, you've hit on the exciting side of the FCPA. You know, bribery gets all the news coverage and the play in movies. Contrary to popular belief, however, the accounting provisions are the bread and butter of FCPA enforcement and are more often charged when pursuing FCPA-related actions. The accounting provisions, often referred to as the books and records or internal control provisions, essentially requires companies to create and use regular bookkeeping, accounting, internal controls, and compliance procedures sufficient to identify and prevent potential FCPA violations. The FCPA books and records provision requires reasonably current documents and information, such as annual and quarterly reports, usually required by the SEC. It also requires the keeping of books in a reasonable detail. The internal control provision requires a company to develop an internal compliance system to make, again, reasonable assurances that, among other things, assets are compared at reasonable intervals with plans to reconcile differences in those numbers if those differences do occur. Now, the FCPA does not specify what practices will satisfy the books and records or accounting controls requirements. Instead, the statute broadly defines the, quote, reasonable detail requirement for books and records and the, quote, reasonable assurances, end quote, to be provided by the issuer's accounting controls as, and I quote, such level of detail and degree of assurance as would satisfy prudent officials in the conduct of their own affairs. So that's a long way of saying that companies are going to be on the hook to maintain a system that accurately and in almost real time can help identify and review financial information to understand the, the potential occurrence of an FCPA violation. Now, my favorite joke about the FCPA is that if a company is diligent in its financial recording and has a specific line item on its financials marked bribery or, quote, illicit payments to government officials under its operating expenses, it's only going to be you know, on the hook for that anti-bribery provision because their accounting records, for lack of a better phrase, uh, will be in good standing order. <laughs> I, I think that's sad, but true, Chris. And I mean, hey, look, if you're going to do it, do it right. That's right. You're, you're absolutely correct. I think the, the bribery piece is often a little bit more exciting and, and more the stuff of movie magic. But you're right, too, that I think the, the books and records piece 
perhaps plays an outside role, at least from an enforcement perspective. I think over the the last few years, we've seen more books and records cases. And we're going to talk about some of those enforcement trends in just a second. But one of the things we always like to do on this podcast is give a little bit of a practitioner's perspective. And I just want to take a moment to say, at least from this practitioner's perspective, uh, and maybe this is not at all a hot take, but FCPA cases are a, are a big deal. Uh, even an allegation of FCPA misconduct can cause significant business disruption and reputational harm. An internal investigation or cooperating or participating in a government investigation can cost a lot of money and go on for years. So the, the consequences of even being embroiled in an FCPA matter can be severe. If charges are brought and if you enter into some kind of settlement agreement, or if you ultimately go to trial, the penalties, both civil and criminal, can be extraordinary. And we're going to talk about a couple examples of that today. But it's just a note to say, look, a little bit of this can be can be wonky, and we're going to talk about some policy and some other things. But this continues to be a really hot area, an area of, of constant interest for, for practitioners and for good reason. So with that, Chris, I think we want to segue and talk a little bit about some enforcement trends. You want to take it away? Yeah. This first question for you, Jessica, you know, let's talk about those trends. Where are we today in terms of enforcement actions? And, and what are you seeing play out in practice with how regulators are utilizing the FCPA in today's landscape? Sure. So it's interesting uh, because when, you know, Trump became president in, in 2016, there were a lot of predictions that the FCPA was about to meet its demise. You you actually kind of quoted him in your introduction to this podcast um, about it being a horrible law. Um, many people are aware that the current president is not a fan of the FCPA, to put it mildly, which I'm, we'll get into in a little bit. But I know for my own perspective, and I'm sure Andy's been in the same situation where for the past, you know, three years, I've been fielding calls from reporters asking, you know, is there the big downturn? You know, I don't see as many cases happening. Has the FCPA enforcement, you know, fallen off a cliff? And I kept telling reporters that, you know, look, FCPA cases settle when they settle. Um, many of these cases have a long life when it comes um, to terms of an investigation and disclosure. I mean, they, they call it sometimes the long shadow of FCPA enforcement because once a company learns of FCPA uh, potential violation, there's potentially a very long internal investigation. Once it's disclosed, to the government. There's a long investigative process and negotiation process with the government. So these cases can take quite a long time um, to to actually go through the process. So when they settle, they settle. And and quite frankly, you never want to look at one year as indicative of an overall trend because things vary so much um, depending on the nature of the cases that settle at any given time and and the timeline. So for the past few years, I'd been saying, you know, look, just wait. The cases settle when they settle. I don't see anything that's worrisome yet. And then we hit 2019. And then although I typically say, don't look at one year as a trend. 2019 was a pretty spectacular year when it comes to FCPA enforcement. By many measures, many people will even view it as the most significant year of FCPA enforcement to date. We now have a new high watermark when it comes to uh, fines, although I think 2020 might actually beat it, knowing um, the Airbus settlement that Andy's going to talk about and also um, some settlements that we know potentially are in the pipeline. Um, but there was more than $2.6 billion in corporate fines by the government under the FCPA, which was a new record. So that um, the number of cases um, were just significant. We we saw just huge numbers of FCPA cases. We saw a record number of trials taking place. We saw a record number of individuals forcing and uh, facing some sort of enforcement action. So overall, on any metric that you would look at, whether it's the total recoveries by the government, the number of cases the number of trials, the number of individuals. This was a record-breaking year on a lot of different levels. So it's pretty clear to me that anybody that was predicting the death of the FCPA wasn't exactly correct when it comes to what we saw in 2019. Uh, Jessica, to that point, I mean, it sounds like you know you, you've talked a bit about how one year can't be the the indicator for for a new trend. But is that kind of conflux of activity tied to any specific uh, posture or action? Uh, you know, between twenty nineteen and, and twenty twenty, or is it more just the aligning of the stars for many of these these large cases coming together? 
It's a few things. Um, I think it's a mix. I think some of these cases were just bound to, to settle. We know Walmart was in the pipeline for a very long time, and that was bound to settle at some point. Um, we know Goldman Sachs is coming up in 2020. That was bound to settle. We knew Airbus was coming, so that was going to be bound to settle, and that was the early part of this year. Um, but a lot of it, actually, if you look at some of the largest cases that we have to date, if you look at the top 10 FCPA cases, a lot of it relates to what I call our criminal superstar. Her name's Golnara Karamova. I probably butchered her name, but... <laughs> which I always apologize to my students in class when I do it. I try my best. But she's really, in terms of criminality, she's a spectacular individual. She um, is the daughter of the late Uzbek president and really just unprecedented levels of corruption. And some of the largest cases in FCPA history relate to her, people paying her off to obtain access to the Uzbek telecom industry. So when you see cases like the Ericsson case or Telia or MTS or even Vimplecom, all of those, um, respectively, Ericsson is the second largest case, Telia is the third largest case, MTS is the fifth largest case, and Vimplecom is the seventh largest case in FCPA history. They all relate to her corruption. So there is that common thread that they were all bound to settle around the same time and as each other. I mean, it's all within a few years of each other. Um, But nevertheless, they all had massive settlements to reflect the massive amount of corruption surrounding this particular individual. But then also you see just spinoff with the Petrobras uh, investigations occurring down in Brazil. There's spinoff litigation related to that. But a lot of it is, you know, timing and some of these cases were just due for settlement. I know uh, last year as well, Jessica, the DOJ announced several subtle changes to its FCPA corporate enforcement policy. The changes relate principally to the level or nature of disclosure, cooperation, and remediation that companies must provide in order to receive a declination or other favorable treatment in an FCPA matter. Tell us a little bit more about the policy and the impact it seems to be having on FCPA enforcement. Sure. Well, the policy was effectively created to provide companies with a little more certainty when it came to cooperation. The government for the past you know, 15 years or so has been encouraging companies to come forward, voluntarily disclose their potential violations of the FCPA, and return for promises of leniency, whether it be reduced fines or penalties, not as much as a declination um, prior to the corporate enfo- enforcement policy. But there had always been this strong uh, encouragement by the government to do so. Really, what the corporate enforcement policy did was put this policy into writing and give companies the understanding that that there would be a presumption of declination if companies would voluntarily disclose, appropriately remediate, fully cooperate, and basically otherwise settle and resolve these cases in a matter um, that's satisfactory to the government. So again, it was all about certainty. And I think what we've seen over the past year or so, year and a half, is that the government's come out with some clarifications. It's refined some of the terms that it uses in the corporate enforcement policy. Some of the more obscure aspects of the policy have also been clarified or refined, um, all again to provide some level of assurance to companies that they should come forward, um, disclose and cooperate and and receive leniency in return. What we have seen in practice, though, is that um, there was a lot of concern that if companies voluntarily disclosed, cooperated, otherwise appropriately remediated, that they would still face some sort of punishment if there was some sort of aggravating factor because it was it's noted in the policy that that could preclude a declination if there are aggravating factors such as the involvement of high level executives in in the corrupt activity uh, but what we saw, at least in 2019, was that the government actually did still hold to its promise of a declination, at least in two instances, one involving a company named Cognizant Technology and another one involving a company named Quad Graphics, Inc. Both cases involved high-level officials involved in the corrupt activity, but nevertheless, due to the company's high levels of cooperation, voluntary disclosure, and significant remediation, they still received declinations from the government. So in practice, the government is demonstrating that it still is rewarding cooperation, it's rewarding voluntary disclosure, and in certain circumstances, it's demonstrating that it's not going to give you the ultimate benefit if you don't do these sorts of things. The Erickson case, which I mentioned previously, now it's listed as like the second most expensive FCPA case in history. Um, I'm sorry, now it's the third most expensive thanks to Airbus. So in the Erickson case, what we saw was that the government didn't give them as much of a reduction in their sentence because the company didn't do the types of things that the government expects, terminate all the relevant employees, um, engage in full remediation, you know, otherwise disclose 
a really critical information that was part of the ongoing investigation. So the government has demonstrated, at least in several cases, that it's going to reward you even in the face potentially of some sort of aggravating factors. But also, it's not going to reward you as much if you don't do all the things it expects under this policy. So I think it's, I mean, it's clear that the policy is starting to have some impact, perhaps on how uh, companies comport themselves or the circumstances in which they voluntarily disclose potential misconduct to the DOJ. Andy, do you have a different take or some other points that you want to make with respect to the, either the shape of the corporate enforcement policy or, or how it is taking root? Sure. Thanks. Uh, I see the enforcement policy as, as having set out to accomplish three things, uh, essentially, and has had varying degrees of success. Jessica has already spoken to one. I think in the first instance, the uh, corporate enforcement policy is really a, a formal declination policy. Uh, as Jessica said, declinations had been issued, but they were typically not public, and companies frequently were clamoring for further guidance on what they had to do to get a declination. The government would not make declinations public because they didn't want to reveal that a company, which had been under investigation, turned out to, to uh, not be facing liability. Where it wasn't facing liability, there was no point in exposing that it had been investigated. And so it was really to protect the companies. But the problem is that it didn't give us enough guidance on what a company had to do to get a declination. So the enforcement policy uh, provides more specific standards for declinations, and then makes uh, more public announcements when declinations have issued. And that has been a huge gain. That's clearly a step forward. Companies now have much greater assurance of, of what they need to do to get a declination in the event that misconduct does occur in the company. Uh, and another of the goals was to incentivize voluntary disclosure and incentivize cooperation. For years, people practicing in the securities fraud space have, have known of the cooperation credit phenomenon. The idea has always been the, the government will promise uh, to uh, corporate defendants, cooperate with us, voluntarily disclose and cooperate in other ways, and uh, we will give you cooperation credit. Well, companies would often ask, cooperation credit, how much? Put a number on it. Can we put a percentage on it? Can we put uh, a dollar amount on it? And, and the government could not. Uh, it was just a, a, a vague promise that if you play nice with us, we will be good to you, but, but how good we will be to you, we're not willing to commit in advance. Well, the, the corporate enforce, enforcement policy uh, is trying to, to make cooperation credit more specific. So it basically has three tiers of penalty reductions. It's got a 25% reduction, a 50% reduction, and then a declination, which it's something like 100% uh, penalty reduction. No penalty, right? But there are three stages. Uh, you can get a 25% penalty reduction if you don't voluntarily disclose, but you cooperate, remediate, and disgorge. You can get a 50% penalty reduction uh, if you voluntarily disclose, cooperate, remediate, and disgorge. And then you can also get beyond that a full declination if a number of the other factors are present. Absence of aggravating circumstances is one, but as Jessica already reported, uh, we've seen some declinations even in the presence of aggravating circumstances. But I think this is part of the policy that hasn't worked very well. Because if you go back and look at the penalty reductions that have been announced under the DOJ, we see lots of declinations. That's good. We see lots of the uh, 25% penalty reductions where the DOJ will, will formally announce, we're reaching a settlement here with the company. We're giving them a 25% reduction off the bottom of the sentencing range because the company cooperated, remediated, and disgorged. What we're seeing very, very little of is that middle category, the 50% penalty reduction. And again, that penalty reduction is earned where a company cooperates, remediates, and disgorges, but where they had voluntarily disclosed in the first instance. And again, voluntarily disclosure is defined as before the government knows about it. Why are we not seeing more voluntary disclosure under the corporate enforcement policy? Well, think about the comparison between the 25% penalty reduction and the 50% penalty reduction. The only difference between the two is voluntary disclosure, which means that the added penalty reduction benefit for voluntary disclosure under the enforcement policy is only 25%. That is, though the, the policy is trying to incentivize voluntary disclosure, all they've done is given an added 25% discount for voluntary disclosure. And think about that from the perspective of a company. You uh, are aware of criminal misconduct within the company. You're considering whether to voluntarily disclose. You have no reason to think the government is presently aware of your misconduct. 
you can either wait, not tell the government, see if they find out. And if they do find out, then cooperate, remediate, and disgorge. And you get a 25% reduction. If you bring it to their attention before they even know, you're only eligible for a 50% penalty reduction. And that's just not enough of an incentive to take the enormous step of voluntarily revealing to the government that you have uh, you've engaged in criminal misconduct. So we're just not, we're not seeing a lot of those. The third thing that the enforcement policy uh, is trying to do is, is to use corporate enforcement to, to prosecute individuals. Historically, there's been a criticism that FCPA enforcement has depended far too heavily on corporate prosecutions at the expense of, the, of individual prosecutions and the added deterrent value. Well, uh, what the corporate enforcement policy has done is that we will not give companies cooperation credit unless they disclose all evidence relevant to individual liability within the company. It's a, it's a redefinition of cooperation. And what you would expect to find, what we would hope to find, what the DOJ has certainly hoped to find, is that you would see corporate settlements, DPAs and MPAs. The government then uses evidence it has extracted from the company to prosecute individuals within the company. So there would be follow-on individual prosecutions in the wake of corporate settlements. And indeed, we have seen individual prosecutions go through the roof historically speaking, in a historical perspective, in the last several years. So I think just to sum up that individual prosecutions, very effective, declinations, very effective, uh, incentivizing voluntary disclosure. I don't know. I think the jury's still out. It sounds to me, Andy, like there's a little bit of a prisoner's dilemma writ large when it comes to that uh, voluntary disclosure and and actually quantified, right, from a reduction perspective. So uh, interesting thought on that. Yeah, that's right. You know, the, the the quantification, that's good. That's a step forward. But now you've got to make sure the quantified reductions are proportional to what you're asking the company to do. And I don't think a mere 25% reduction for taking the extraordinary step of voluntary disclosure uh, is, is quite enough. I would tend to agree with that. I also think there's something to the notion that we are seeing more declinations or perhaps just that we now know more about declinations. I mean, I, I remember as far back as when Chuck DeRoss was heading up the FCPA unit over at DOJ, he promised that that the SEC and DOJ were going to tell us more about declinations, right? What were the circumstances in which they decided not to bring charges? I think we're seeing more of that now. And I know that companies rely on those matters as as barometers, right? Like, what do I have to do to get the most possible benefit out of my cooperation, remediation, disgorgement? What are the circumstances in which I think a self-disclosure is likely to lead to a declination versus eh, if I'm only going to end up in that 50% range, you know, maybe I roll the dice. So I, I think there's something to understanding more about the, the declinations. In the past, prior to around the time that the, before they started publicizing declinations, companies didn't want declinations to be publicized. Individual companies that got in trouble and that would, you know, disclose to the government and the government would ultimately decide to not take action against the company didn't want that information out there because as you noted in your introduction, it can be so damaging even to release information suggesting that there's an investigation that could immediately launch into shareholder litigation. So companies didn't want this information out there. And then, you know, you started to see Morgan Stanley and they made this big deal out of Morgan Stanley having um, this amazing compliance program and that they received a declination, even though a lot of it was the result of an employee engaging in self-dealing, there was this notion that Morgan Stanley had done everything right. And look, they had this issue, they dealt with it, and they got a declination. And all of a sudden, everybody was holding up Morgan Stanley as this kind of, as you were saying, barometer for what you're supposed to do. And since then, after the corporate enforcement policy, there is this kind of desire and need to publicize the declinations and companies, I think, are are less opposed to it. I do think, however, that this new um, method of seeking declinations with disgorgement is a deterrent. I think that there are a lot of companies, and I've talked to a lot of attorneys uh, that represent companies in this area, and they say that they've increasingly stopped disclosing cases to the government because of this new category of declination plus disgorgement, because they the amount of money can be staggering that you have to give to the government under a disgorgement process. So I think in some level, the disgorgement component actually has dissuaded some companies from a lot of the good things that the, the policy has tried to attempt to do. I would completely agree with that take. Andy, was there, was there something else you wanted to say on this score? 
No, just I think most people would say from a fairness perspective, if a company has engaged in misconduct, even if the company is not liable, but individuals within the company have engaged in misconduct, there's something to be said for the company not being able to keep the, the proceeds of the crime. Having said that, requiring the company to disgorge does deter voluntary disclosure. So there might be a, a wane of different uh, aspects of the public interest here. All right. So let's pivot a little bit. I mean, I, I do think that that the policy considerations around the corporate enforcement policy are, are fascinating. But I, I want to step back and think a little bit bigger picture about FCPA enforcement policy generally. I mean, I think what has come out of this conversation are you know a number of metrics that would indicate that FCPA enforcement is very much alive and well, as well as some of the drivers for that. You know whether that is latency in when cases are actually made public or when they're when the cases are brought. Um, you know things like the corporate enforcement policy perhaps driving some people or more people to voluntarily disclose misconduct. You know wh- whatever the reasons. It seems like FCPA enforcement remains pretty strong. And I think that would come as a surprise to many. Because as Jessica said a few minutes ago, when President Trump took office, I think a lot of people really did believe FCPA enforcement was going to fall off a cliff. And I think that that sentiment got stronger even just a couple of months into into his term when he named Jay Clayton as his nominee to be the chairman of the SEC. You know, during the, the confirmation process, it came out that now Chairman Clayton seemed to have a, a pretty dim view of the FCPA and its potential impact on U.S. businesses and their ability to compete abroad. In fact, he was on a committee that published a report um, through the New York Bar Association that was pretty damning of the impact of the FCPA and, and I think made some recommendations about how we should step back from being the corruption enforcer uh, for the world. Those fears have kind of gotten quiet or gone away, again, because it seems like FCPA enforcement is pretty strong, but it's back in the policy conversation now. Because even you know this year, within the last couple of months, there have been a couple different public statements coming um, out of the White House or from, from folks around the White House that say that the president and his administration is again looking at making changes to, to the FCPA. So you know, with, with apologies for the long windup, Jessica, I mean, what do you think is the administration's posture and what might happen in another four years of a Trump administration? So um, looking into my crystal ball, <laughs> I, I have to say, well, the administration posture has been it's there's two. Basically, we're seeing two different pictures being painted of what the how the administration feels. There's Trump and his hatred of the law. We know from um, some reporting that he had asked his former secretary of state, Rex Tillerson, to get rid of it. Um, and then Rex Tillerson told him, look, you know, this is an important law. It actually is good for companies. It's Corruption is bad for the world. We, it's a good thing to have the FCPA and told him that it would be nearly impossible to get the law repealed. Uh, there's then rumors that he had uh, one of his policy advisors, Stephen Millen, look into doing some sort of executive order that dealt with the FCPA, which we all know wouldn't be legally viable. So we know he's tried at some points, at least through reporting, to get rid of it. And then that, of course, was somewhat affirmed by one of his employees or one of his officials, Larry Kudlow, who said that they were looking into it. But I don't know how seriously that's been taken. I think the the media spun around in circles for a few days, maybe even a week or so, um, in light of some of those statements. Um, civil society groups came out and reinforced how important the FCPA was. But I'm not quite certain how how seriously people took it, mostly because we look at the enforcement record of 2019. There are career uh, DOJ officials that are, you know, prosecuting these cases. It's generally seen as a nonpartisan area of the Justice Department that most people view corruption as bad globally. They view the FCPA as a good thing, um, at least within the United States. And, And so, you know, prosecutions, investigations have continued to pace and in fact have increased. So we've seen that continue. So there seems to be this juxtaposition between what you know we're hearing out of the White House or Trump specifically um, versus what we're seeing on the ground in, in actual enforcement numbers coming out of the Justice Department. What does this mean going forward? 
hard to tell. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now, so that's pretty much sucking up all the oxygen in the room. But as this potentially, the pandemic, which I know we're going to get into, will will increase potential opportunities for corruption, that we may see an increase in in enforcement actions. Um, We may see, um, we know right now that the administration, even with everything going on, is still, you know, relaxing certain rules relating to environmental regulations and other types of regulations during the pandemic. So maybe this is something along the lines of if we're in a second Trump administration where even though this is happening, you know, the political appointees are continuing to take political actions that, that we wouldn't otherwise expect during the middle of a pandemic. So that could happen. Honestly, I think that it just really isn't high on the radar screen right now. Um, and I think it, it, it's not going to be if or until it, it negatively impacts something close to the White House, someone or some business close to the White House, in which case the, the attention could be refocused on the FCPA. It's hard to tell. I, I think it's in much greater jeopardy in a second administration than it has been, at least in the first. Yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting point, and and maybe that's the right one. That something would have to get it back on the radar in a big way for for there to be any major actual policy shifts. But Andy, let me give you a chance here. I mean, I know that earlier this year you told the Washington Post that it was in fact a Republican administration, that the George W. Bush administration, that quote dusted off the law and gave it some teeth. Uh, so what do you think? Do you think there would be a sea change in a second Trump administration? I, I think the theme of this administration is unpredictability. So I, I, my crystal ball is no better than Jessica's. But I think it is important to emphasize that historically, this was very much a nonpartisan statute. Republicans might justify the law one way. Democrats might justify it a different way. But there's a strong justification either way. Uh, for the Trump administration to uh, undo that bipartisan support and, and to, to bring a, a more ideological or, or partisan set of objections to the statute, uh, it would not be consonant with, with our history and uh, it would surprise a lot of people. I think it would create a real jolt. Uh, changes would have to be covert. Uh, and as Jessica has already pointed out, I don't, I don't know if that's going to be effective. Yeah. So I, I think on this issue, maybe we'll put a pin in it for now as none of our crystal balls seem to be working particularly well uh, as, as we try to imagine what the future of FCPA enforcement might look like. I do think we probably all have a pretty good take on what's going on around us in the world right now. Chris, I think we want to talk a little bit about the COVID-19 pandemic and and how that might be playing out. You want to take us in that direction? That's right. I mean, we'd be remiss not to address the elephant in the room or, or technically the element in all four of the rooms as we are still recording remotely here in April 2020. Uh, regarding this episode. So, Jessica, you alluded a little bit to, to how the pandemic might play out in, in both current FCPA actions and as well as what we might see down the road. Obviously, the financial strain uh, that certain companies are being put on and the relative expectations management that they might be dealing with in responding to the pandemic, uh, you know, we could all imagine ways that that might lead to, to more potential violations of the FCPA. Do you agree with some of those, th- those statements and, and think that the, we're going to see a little bit more from, from the FCPA regarding the pandemic or, or maybe kind of that pause button you talked about if we look at the same term in the second round? Sure. I I think anytime you're dealing with an emergency situation, whether it's, you know, a a stimulus, which we saw in 2008, you're dealing with Katrina, emergency situation there. Um, You're dealing with the, you know, recovery efforts in in Iraq and Afghanistan. Those those are all of these situations where typically you see either a special inspector general put in place, or you see this emergency type of contracting. Um, Anytime you see just either tons of money being flooded into a system through stimulus or being flooded into the system to to buy emergency goods and services, there is that very significant increased risk and corruption. So so we know that historically, that just anytime we see great amounts of money and tied to exigent circumstances, there that increases the risk. And this situation is, is no different. One, um, if we're just looking from a U.S. perspective, non-FCP related, um, just given the trillions of dollars where you're just spending on a stimulus, that is going to create increased corruption risks, um, at least domestically. But from a foreign corruption risk perspective, absolutely, we're seeing major disruption to supply chains. We're seeing situations where um, there's been severe restrictions on the export, particularly of personal protective equipment, masks, you know, gloves, other sorts of things. There's, there's a global um, shortage of these goods. So 
where there's a global shortage and there's increased demand, there's always going to be that increased risk for, you know, bribing a customs official to release something or bribing, you know, a doctor in a hospital that doesn't have enough ventilators to, you know, have your family member um, receive the care over somebody else's family member. There's just almost an infinite number of opportunities um, once we start dealing with, you know, vaccines and the money towards vaccines and and in different approval processes. Um, We've seen many FCPA cases over the years in the life sciences industry. So, so all of these areas, again, are going to be increased risk. And then you couple that with the, the economic pressure, whether because of a potential recession or depression, whatever, whatever's coming, companies will be under great pressure to, to make money. Individuals who don't want to lose their jobs, don't want to be laid off or furloughed will be under great pressure to make deals. Um, and that increases the temptation to engage in corruption. So all of this is really like this, the, the stage is set. Someone just needs to light a match at this point. Um, so I do think we're going to see an increase in FCPA cases. I know the Justice Department, um, I have a lot of students that are that are interning still with the Justice Department or will be doing so this summer. They're working remotely. Um, whereas we've seen some slowdown in litigation, we know courts are doing things remotely as well. Um, so it, it's nothing has you know, come to a halt. It's slower, but people are still working. People are investigating. And my goodness, has the Justice Department named just uh, so many new initiatives designed to go after fraud and corruption when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic. They haven't specifically pointed out the FCPA as a mechanism, but we've seen them certainly identify uh, fraudulent schemes, you know, hoarding, collusive behavior, bid rigging, things like that. It's it's just a matter of time before they start to identify uh, bribery and corruption as yet another matter that one of its coronavirus task forces will be going after. Yeah, we, we've seen the same at the SEC and some of the other regulators. It seems like there's a pretty steady stream of risk alerts and other guidance coming out that say, be on the lookout for frauds and scams relating to the COVID-19 pandemic. I, I guarantee, you know, folks at the commission and at the Justice Department are reading the same articles, you know, some in the FCPA blog that are pointing out the risks for corruption that I think are very, uh, very apparent in this current in- environment. Andy, what do you what do you think? Will we see a wave of enforcement actions? Again, maybe that would be two years, three years, four years down the road. But will we see a wave of uh, COVID nineteen FCPA actions, or is there any reason or incentive? you know, not to punish U.S. companies for corrupt misconduct during this unprecedented period? That's a fascinating question, Kurt. And I think we are, uh, once we get a handle on the public health piece and we, we get the virus down uh, and, and somewhat under control, we're going to have some very difficult policy decisions to make. I certainly agree that uh, with Jessica that uh, the virus creates all kinds of opportunities for corruption and, and, and indeed will will lead to an increase in corruption. And I certainly agree that any corruption that's related to uh, trying to exploit the health crisis uh, should be uh, prosecuted aggressively. But we have a harder question on the horizon as to which measures we're going to take to help stimulate this economy uh, if and when we're prepared to come out of the recession that we're now entering. I mean, the IMF has just said that we're anticipating the worst economic year on record since the Great Depression. Once we uh, at least are incrementally prepared to come back to work, there's going to be a desperate need to stimulate business activity. Question, and it's a hard one, do we get our supply chains moving faster than we can run our due diligence? Do we enter into deals where in an ideal world we would have taken a little more anti-corruption precautionary measures, but but here there's a sense of urgency? In the same way that we are having to debate an, an almost incomprehensible question, which is how many lives do we put at risk in order to stimulate the economy? What is the trade-off between economic growth and the protection of human life? They're almost impossibly difficult questions, and yet they're questions we have to ask. In the same way, we may have to ask, should we slow down business deals in the short term because they present compliance red flags? when we are staring in the face uh, a, a recession that the likes of which we haven't seen in 80 years? Those are hard questions. Um, and so I, th- I think uh, companies are going to have to make those decisions. And then uh, enforcement agencies are going to have to decide uh, to what extent are we going to expect compliance to be as rigorous in the face of a recession, even bordering on a depression, mm-hmm. as we expect them to be rigorous in times of, of plenty. Those those are hard questions. 
Yeah, Andy, you're right. Those are those are tough questions. Jessica, do you have a take on on how we might be able to resolve those in the future, or do you agree with Andy on on kind of the the balls that we have to keep juggling in the air as as we move forward? Look, I mean, I appreciate the fact that there are multiple considerations, particularly when we're dealing with something as complex as a pandemic, and then obviously the economic turmoil that it's created. But at the end of the day, I think that you need to enforce the laws. I think when individuals take advantage of the law, uh, advantage of these situations for their own personal gain, whether it be fraud or hoarding or or corruption, I think that the government needs to enforce the laws. Otherwise, they become meaningless. Um, I mean, no, Andy, like like me, we both work with officials from developing countries regularly in our work, and I'm always asked routinely what is more important, having the laws or enforcement? And my answer is always the same, both. You know, you can have the best anti-corruption laws in the world, but if you don't enforce them, they're meaningless. And conversely, you can have great enforcement record too, but if there are weaknesses in your laws, that's a problem as well. So you really need both. And and so I think that if we were to somehow ease up on enforcement, even though there's it's there's it's a time of hardship and, and there's challenges associated with it, I think it, it sends a message that corruption will be tolerated. And, and I think that's a problem. I think this is an interesting conversation to have, particularly in the context of some of the cases that we've seen recently. I alluded to it earlier, and, and I think Andy would agree that there have been a number of cases where it seems like prosecutors are are stretching the jurisdictional reach of the FCPA. One of them is Airbus, and I want to I want to ask Andy to tell us about that. But just to orient our listeners. In January, the airline manufacturer Airbus entered into deferred prosecution agreements, or DPAs, with U.S., U.K., and French authorities to end long-running corruption probes into the company's alleged bribery of foreign officials to secure jet sales. To settle the matter, Airbus agreed to pay $4 billion, that's with a B, billion, the largest ever bribery settlement. Included in the global settlement was a $294 million penalty for violations of the FCPA. From an FCPA perspective, the alleged misconduct appears to have been pretty overt. In fact, the U.S. District Court judge who signed off on the settlement described it as a pervasive and pernicious bribery scheme. So Andy, tell us a little bit about the Airbus case. Why is this so significant? Sure. Very happy to do that. As we discussed under President George W. Bush, we start enforcing this law. By now, a number of other countries have FCPA-type laws, but nobody is enforcing them. So we are unilaterally deciding to enforce this law. Uh, query, does that put U.S. companies at a competitive disadvantage? From when, when the U.S. enforcement agencies are enforcing a foreign bribery prohibition and the competitors from other countries, U.K., France, Germany, Japan, wherever, don't have a similar prohibition. Well, maybe, but the idea was twofold. One is we're trying to take a long-term vision of cleaning up markets around the world so that business is more fair and more efficient for everybody. Nobody likes bribery. Uh, And then the other is by our own unilateral enforcement, we're going to try to be a catalyst to enforcement around the world. We're going to try to stimulate or even pressure or sometimes even shame other countries into enforcing their anti-bribery laws so that eventually we will have something that more closely resembles uniform enforcement around the world, at which point the, the playing field would be truly level. So that raises two questions. One, how do we get other countries to start enforcing their laws? Airbus is an answer to that. Another question that is raised in that space is, how broadly do we try to enforce our law against companies from other jurisdictions when those jurisdictions may not be enforcing their bribery laws as much as we are. In other words, to level the playing field so that this law is not uh, unfair to U.S. companies, should we interpret the jurisdictional provisions as broadly as we can to bring in as many foreign companies as possible? And Airbus suggests an interesting answer to that question as well. So as you mentioned, it was a joint enforcement action between the U.S., the U.K., and France. Now, UK has been in the anti-corruption, uh, anti-bribery enforcement space for, for several years now. Uh, they, they passed their statute in 2010. But France was a laggard. France was not getting on board with uh, adopting FCPA-type laws and enforcing them, as the UK was, as Germany was, shoot, as Italy even was. France was not. 
And there was a lot of talk about what's it going to take to get France on board and to adopt and then enforce a foreign bribery law. Well, Airbus was France's first big case. It was uh, France joining the, the multi-jurisdictional enforcement effort. That's very, very important. And it shows that France now, despite its, its hesitation earlier, it has, has, has bought into the anti-bribery enforcement movement. So that's, that's a really important development. They passed their law. As I said, the UK passed their law in 2010. France passed their law in, in 2017. And then this is the first major fruit of that law. So that's, that's a, an unqualified success. The jurisdictional question is harder. So we said it was a multi-jurisdictional enforcement. We've got the France, we've got the UK, we've got the US. But Airbus doesn't have a very strong connection to the United States. As Jessica already mentioned, most of the top 10 enforcement actions are against non-US companies, but those companies are issuers. They are subject to FCPA jurisdiction because they have some of their stocks uh, listed on US exchanges. And that's a clear jurisdictional problem. Airbus is not an issuer. Airbus does not have stocks listed on the U.S. exchange, nor is Airbus, does Airbus have a headquarters or a principal place of business in the United States. So it's not what the FCPA calls a domestic concern. So what are the grounds for the U.S. to assert jurisdiction over Airbus? Well, they're, they're a little bit on the flimsy side, which is interesting. There is a, an underused, a lesser used jurisdictional prong, which holds that a company that commits an act in furtherance of the bribe while in the territory of the United States is subject to the FCPA. Now, notice the nuance there. It's not that they committed the bribe within the territory of the United States. They committed an act in furtherance of the bribe. Well, that's potentially very, very broad. And indeed, we're seeing its breadth tested in Airbus because the only jurisdictional nexus to the United States uh, is two. One is that uh, one of the Airbus executives sent emails in furtherance of the bribery scheme while that executive was in the United States. And two, uh, Airbus, which is a, a French and Dutch company, hosted some uh, foreign officials uh, at some luxury resorts in the United States, in Utah and in, in Hawaii. That's all that happened. That was the only basis for the U.S. to claim jurisdiction. And yet, Kurt, as you said, approximately $300 million in penalties. So query is it good for the FCPA or bad for the FCPA? Is it good for global anti-bribery enforcement or bad for global anti-bribery enforcement for the U.S. to assert jurisdiction over cases where the only connection is that a couple of emails were sent and there was a party at one of our resorts? That's it. The, the, the business doesn't concern the United States. The, the officials aren't in the United States. The illegal payments don't occur in the United States. That was it. Airbus is the is a... The first major corporate case, certainly the only case in the in the top 10 in which the only jurisdictional provision is these emails, acts in furtherance of the bribe, raises difficult questions. I think the jurisdictional element will always be a sticky wicket. As the non-attorney on, on the podcast here, I've been following a lot of the FCPA actions in recent years. And I feel like that is a an issue that we keep coming back to uh, in a variety of cases. Airbus, obviously, we've talked about. But I know the decisions and the ongoing legal status of both the Hoskins and the Ho uh, cases has, has really shined some interesting lights on the jurisdictional perspective. Jessica, I was wondering if you could talk to a couple of the issues in those cases as well as we're on the topic of, of the reach of the FCPA from the U.S.'s point of view. Sure. Um, when it comes to Hoskins, the what I call like the never-ending saga of Lawrence Hoskins, um, which just seems to finally be no, actually, it's on appeal again by the Justice Department. So it's a never-ending saga. I get back to my original statement of Lawrence Hoskins. Um, he's a British national and a former Alston UK executive based in Paris. He was charged in 2013 with FCPA and money laundering violations. Um, the, the the core question in in this case is, you know, Hoskins, you know, never came to the United States. He's not a U.S. citizen. Um, so none of the traditional uh, means of charging somebody under the jurisdictional bases of the FCPA were available. To 
them. So the question became whether, you know, uh, a person can be guilty as an accomplice or a co-conspirator in FCPA crime if he or she is incapable of committing the crime as a principal. So, you know, can you be charged with aiding and abetting um, an FCPA violation or conspiracy to violate the FCPA um, if you can't be charged with a substantive FCPA violation because you lack a jurisdictional basis to do so? I um, mean, and, and there's some long procedural history, uh, you know, basically it was decided at the district court level that they that this couldn't happen. Then I went up to the Second Circuit, which just really came out with a very influential decision um, stating that because he was never a U.S. citizen, national or resident, and wasn't accused of having acted in furtherance of the bribery scheme while in the U.S., he could only be charged as an agent of the domestic concern. So um, it went to trial under that legal theory that, you know, whether the government could demonstrate that Hoskins was an agent of the uh, the U.S. subsidiary of Alston. He was convicted at trial. Um, but then following the trial, the a federal judge partially acquitted him um, on some of those FCPA charges um, or on the FCPA charges, basically demonstrating that the government had not demonstrated that he was an agent of the uh, U.S. subsidiary, you know, they, at trial, they basically pointed to the fact that he had hired two consultants that were supposed to bribe um, Indonesian officials. And so that was kind of their their hook as, an, as under the agency theory. But the government after the trial or the judge after the trial dismissed that. Um, the government has indicated that it's going to appeal that decision. Um, so it is not ended. So it continues um, as to this kind of new agency theory under the Hoskins case. The Ho case is a criminal case against Chi Ping Patrick Ho. He's got a few different names. I see Patrick Ho most frequently in these cases. He's actually already been sentenced. It's a little bit of an easier case, I think, than Hoskins, which I think is a little bit less of a, a, a more of a close call than I think the Ho case. But in this particular case, um, he was alleged to have bribed African officials, you know, first a $2 million bribe to the president of Chad, um, and then also a $500,000 bribe to a Ugandan foreign minister. Uniquely in this case, he what he is a foreign citizen, but he is also the secretary general of an NGO, which is based both in Hong Kong and Virginia. So there is this jurisdictional hook, um, given his, his role within this NGO that has um, some bases in Virginia. Also, he did take some actions um, in furtherance of some of these schemes within the United States. Notably, he had wired $500,000 thousand dollars from Hong Kong through a New York correspondent bank account, um, among other things. So in this particular case, the government um, alleged that there was jurisdiction, both as an officer, director, or agent of the Virginia-linked NGO. So that was the one basis of jurisdiction, uh, basically as an, an agent of a domestic concern. And the second basis of jurisdiction um, was pointing to the territorial provision, which basically allows the government to, to charge FCPA violations when foreign nationals take actions in further of a bribe within the territory of the United States. So they they basically pleaded in the alternative and uh, Ho did, you know, challenged this saying, you know, you got to pick one. And the court disagreed saying, look, you can, it's fine for you to, you know, plead alternative theories of jurisdiction. That works for us. Um, so that one seemed a little bit more straightforward to me than the Hoskins case, which seems to be a little bit all over the place, but it'll be interesting to see how it works out in the end. Yeah, I, I think what what we're seeing coming through all of these cases, if there is a, a common thread that runs through them, is that prosecutors are going to get pretty creative in the types of jurisdictional theories that they put forward in their charging documents. I mean, we've seen very different theories with respect to Airbus, Hoskins, and Ho, but they all seem to be just about enough to get over the line. Now, I, I think it's noteworthy that that in Airbus, the question was never really put to a judge in the same way that it was in Hoskins and Ho. I mean, essentially what the judge had to do was sign off on a settlement. But it is interesting to see how creative prosecutors can can get in charging FCPA violations. It's interesting you note that um, the creativity, I mean, we always say that, you know, when you're dealing with the prosecution, when you look at any type of indictment, the number of charges and the variety of charges, it's basically whatever sticks, you know, you throw it all against the wall and see what works, right? Um, so we're used to that. But I do think it's becoming increasingly risky for the government to make such um, creative arguments, particularly in these cases, because if we're starting to see an increased prosecution of individuals, we're going to see an increase of a, of a willingness by these individuals to challenge these theories. And that, of course, you have the potential risk of Hoskins, which could 
you know, restrain the government's ability to bring cases under certain circumstances. So I think we, we will continue to see the government stretch the meaning of a lot of the key terms of the FCPA in these cases. But I think they have to be cautious. And I think we've seen that. And, and I, don't, I don't think it's as bad as it is in the domestic side. In our domestic side, we've seen significant collapse of domestic anti-corruption statutes um, through various Supreme Court decisions that have really restricted the use of some of these statutes to pursue domestic corruption. And I do believe at least prosecutors on our domestic corruption side are really being more cautious about the types of cases they bring because of the potential adverse law coming out of the Supreme Court. And I wonder if we'll see some similar hesitancy by prosecutors on the FCPA side uh, due to the fact that increasing number of individuals are going to really challenge these, uh, these arguments. Yeah, it's an interesting juxtaposition. And and I do, I think it's fascinating that in many cases, prosecutors in FCPA cases seem to be taking sort of a, a kitchen sink approach to pleading the jurisdictional elements of their case. And actually, I, I think we saw an example of that possibly, Andy, I want to get your take, but um, possibly in a case that was filed by the SEC just this week against Asante Burko. Uh, Mr. Burko was a former executive director at Goldman Sachs, and the SCC has charged him with FCPA violations, among other things, for orchestrating a bribery scheme to help a client, a Turkish energy company, win a government contract to build and operate an electrical power plant in Ghana. The facts are are pretty damning as they read in the complaint. According to the SEC, Burko helped his client funnel at least $2.5 million to an intermediary in Ghana to pay illicit bribes to Ghanaian government officials. Burko himself allegedly paid more than $60,000 to members of the Ghanaian parliament and other government officials, and also took pains internally to hide his bribery scheme from compliance personnel. So in this case, we have a UK financial services company, a Turkish client, a Ghanaian intermediary, and Ghanaian government officials who were being bribed in connection with the development of a Ghanaian power plant. All pretty non-US stuff so far, but the parent of the UK financial services company trades on the US capital markets, and Burko is himself an American or actually a dual US and Ghanaian citizen. The jurisdictional part of the complaint against Burko reads like a laundry list of things that that could be argued under the FCPA. So, Andy, I mean, what's your take? Where do you think this very recent case fits in the spectrum of jurisdictional arguments we're seeing across these cases? Yeah, so I, I like the metaphor of the of the kitchen sink. I, I think a professor could not have dreamt up a a more varied and and even counterintuitive a set of facts to create some 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 tricky jurisdictional questions. Uh, for all the reasons that you mentioned, Kurt, uh, we've got a Turkish company, we've got Ghanaian officials, a Ghanaian business deal, got uh, an employee in a in a UK office, um, and yet. There are some other aspects of this case that are, are much more straightforward than we see in Hoskins or Ho. First of all, Burko is a U.S. citizen. He has dual citizenship in the, in the U.S. and Ghana. And, and whether that would become complicated um, in litigation, I don't know. But the statute is pretty straightforward. If you're a U.S. citizen, you're a domestic concern, the equivalent of a domestic concern, and, and FCPA applies to you. Full stop. Um, but uh, consistent with what Jessica was just saying, these uh, prosecutors don't want to rely on single jurisdictional theories if they can see even the faintest hole in it. We have uh, a couple other bases. We have this idea, uh, again, referring back to the Hoskins and Ho ideas, uh, particularly Hoskins here, that uh, there's an agency theory that uh, Burko is an agent of the U.S. company, even though he was not doing business in the United States. Well, that's more plausible here because the parent company here actually is a U.S. company. Uh, it's both a domestic concern and an issuer. It's Goldman Sachs. And so uh, the, the agency theory is not nearly as big a stretch. It would be that Burko, by virtue of his employment in the U.K. subsidiary of a U.S. parent, is in effect an agent of the U.S. parent. That may have some teeth. We'll see where that goes. But then you also see in this case the, the, the third and lesser used jurisdictional prong that he committed an act in furtherance of the bribe in the United States. And, and there the complaint says that he used a U.S. email account in uh, perpetrating the bribe and that he was anticipating u- using U.S. banks and the U.S. mail system to 
ultimately commit the bribe. So you've got you've got a hodgepodge of theories, uh, which will hold water. We will see. But ultimately, just to circle back, I think, to our, our original discussion about the enforcement policy, it's a good thing that we're even having this conversation. And it might be the Yates memo and the enforcement policy that are the reason we are. Mm-hmm. We're seeing an increase in, in individual prosecutions. Among the many benefits uh, for the public of individual prosecutions is that, just as Jessica said, they tend to contest charges and go to trial, unlike corporations. And when uh, defendants go to trial, we get judicial review of the prosecutor's theories. And so now we're getting something that actually uh, starts to look like case law, a rarity in the FCPA. We have maybe even the rule of law working, which has been arguably a rarity in the FCPA. And so this this is whatever you think of this or that jurisdictional theory that we have all these theories being tested in courts of law is plainly good for the public. I I certainly agree. And in fact, I I had it in my notes here, a point about how there has been a real lack of meaningful judicial comment or interpretation of the FCPA over the sweep of its history. I mean, we've gotten some cases here and there, but it has been until really the last several years, a rare case where we got a clear judicial interpretation. So I, I think you're you're both right that there are advantages in many respects to the increased number of individual prosecutions that we're seeing. Thank you again, Jessica and Andy, for joining us today on this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. Uh, we hope you enjoyed uh, speaking with us and talking a little bit about the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Uh, Kurt and I would both also like to apologize to the current and potential future students of both Professors Tillotman and, and Spalding, who may be subject to this episode as coursework on a future syllabus uh, for background. So hopefully you can enjoy it as well. As always, we want to hear from you listeners out there regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. As always, you can find me on Twitter at EkimoffCPA. And you can find me at Enforce underscore Update. Thanks again to our guests, and and we wish everyone well and, and good health, and we look forward to speaking with you next time. Be safe out there. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Sanders, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. CLE and CPE credit are not offered for listening to this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, retransmission or editing of this podcast may be made without prior written permission from PLI.